amazing grace shall always be my song of praise for it was grace that bought my liberty I do not know just why he came to love me so he looked beyond my fault and so my need I shall forever lift mine eyes to Calvary to view the cross where Jesus died for me how marvelous the grace that caught song. What a tremendous message. Amen. Aren't you glad for the grace of God in your life? Amen. I mean, with moving for that grace, we, none of us would be anywhere today with the Lord. Amen. So thank God for the grace of God. Well, take your Bible, turn over to the book of Philippians today. Philippians chapter three. We're going to start there. We're going to read a couple of verses in Philippians, and then we're going to kind of kick off what I'm a short little series that I'm going to start on Sunday mornings. And, uh, <clears throat> So let's take a look at the, the book of Philippians over these next few weeks. But 
Philippians chapter 3 to start with. We read there in chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous. But for you, it is safe. Again, I want to focus our attention on rejoice in the Lord. Look at verse 4 also. He says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man... Excuse me. um, I don't know. I have no idea why I turned to that verse. But look at chapter 4, verse 4. I think I just wrote it wrong. Chapter 4, verse 4. Let's go there. That's a good verse too, by the way. It's just not what we're looking for right now. Chapter 4, verse 4. Notice it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, Rejoice. This is one of the prison epistles. You say, what does that mean? Well, it was an epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote while he was in prison. He wrote some epistles to the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians. He wrote to Philemon. They were all written while he was in, incarcerated, while he was in prison. Matter of fact, Philippians was written to the believers in Europe, actually. And again, they had a unique relationship with the Apostle Paul. And that's evidenced by just... Um, this wonderful letter that he writes to them. Paul had visited Philippi on a second missionary journey. And um, you, you, you might recall that he and Barnabas had gone out on their first missionary journey to the area of Galatia. And there they had done a marvelous work with the power of the Holy Spirit. And they'd seen so many people come alive to Christ. And they'd watched as churches were started and God had blessed in that area. And tremendous success. I mean, souls and churches and just God had done a miraculous work. Well, Paul, of course, being concerned about the believers there in in Galatia, thinks to himself, well, you know, it's a very young ministry, a needy ministry, and I want to make sure that they continue to fly straight and accomplish what God has intended for them. So he chooses and decides that it's time to go back and visit those churches again. Well, he thought he would take Barnabas with him. But unfortunately, in this particular case, Barnabas had sought to take Mark, his nephew, as well. Well, earlier, when they had taken Mark with them on their first journey, Mark had turned and departed. He didn't follow through and finish with the particular uh, mission that had been presented to him. And so Paul really said, you know what, I don't have any time for Mark. If Mark's not going to do what he says he's going to do, I'm done with Mark. So you can't take Mark with you. And Barnabas said, listen, if Mark don't go, I'm not going. And before it's over with, there is some major contention between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. Let me tell you something. Uh, uh, concern, uh, you know, uh, contention has been something that has been uh, forever in the church. It's been forever in humanity. It doesn't go away just because we're saved. The reality is, is that we deal with this flesh every day of our life, and we better be well aware of it. And the fact is, is that even amongst these great men of God, there was some contention, all because Paul said, Mark is not worthy to travel with us. Barnabas said, hey, he's my nephew. He's got to go. And you know what? They did not travel together. As a matter of fact, Barnabas ends up taking Mark with him. And Paul ends up taking Silas with him. And so they arrive there in Europe and they meet with Lydia, who would be the first convert in Europe. Uh, Lydia uh, is an um, amazing woman, obviously. She's a woman of means and she ultimately opens her house to these men of God and she turns her home into an operation center, if you will, for all of Europe, if, in a sense. And so they're meeting there. They're allowing, she's allowing them to, to, to house there, to stay there while they minister there in that area. Well, Paul as well 
uh, is out while preaching and stuff. He delivers a little girl, a young lady actually, from demon possession. That doesn't go over too well where he's at. And as a result of that, an uprising comes about and he ends up in prison. And so you recall in Acts chapter 16 when he talks about the, the, the uh, guard, the prison guard, who there is uh, Paul and Silas at midnight are singing and making merry. You know, they're, they're praising the Lord and singing praise to God. And, and all of a sudden the, the, the earthquake comes and it shakes the jail cell. And uh, the, the, this particular jailer, I mean, he's scared to death. He's afraid. Why? Because the prisoners are all loose now. They all got free. God opened up the prison cells and out come Paul and, uh, and Silas. And uh, so he's concerned. I mean, in those days when you lost a prisoner, it was your life. And so here he is prepared to take his own life. I mean, he had said, I will guard these prisoners. I will care for these prisoners. And if, if I lose a prisoner... It'll be my life. Well, guess what? He meant what he said. And as a result, he's prepared to take his life. But Paul and Barnabas said, don't do it. Don't do it. And so anyway, he does not take his life. Paul ends up preaching the gospel to him. He listens, hears, and accepts the Lord Jesus Christ. His whole family comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have this unbelievable beginning to the church here at Philippi. An amazing beginning. So uh, here Paul and, and Silas now are continuing to preach. And... Um, this church at Philippi, uh, Philippi um, it, uh, it begins to grow. And obviously they, they love Paul because he was a spiritual father to them. He's the one who uh, shared the gospel with them, first of all. He's the one that brought Jesus Christ to them. And he met the need in their life, their family, through the Lord and through the word of God. And so now here they are. They're following him in his journeys. They're lovingly meeting his needs. They're providing for him. They're encouraging him along the way. But while Paul is in Jerusalem... He's arrested. And ultimately, the church at Philippi lose sight of him. They don't know where he went off to. They, I mean, they didn't have cell phones like we have today. They didn't, you couldn't text or check Facebook. Hey, where's uh, anybody seen Paul around? You know, it wasn't like that in those days. So uh, they, they lost track of him. And for two years, they had no idea where the Apostle Paul was. Well, ultimately, they find out and hear that he is in Rome and that he's in prison in Rome. So their heart goes out to Paul. Again, they love Paul, and uh, they send their pastor, Epaphroditus, to go meet Paul there in prison in Rome. They send a gift with him, as a matter of fact. And they're trying to minister to his needs. They're trying to let him know, hey, we're in your corner. We love you. We're here for you. And while he's there, he writes this epistle to the Philippians. While Epaphroditus is there, he writes the epistle. And, and Epaphroditus will ultimately bring this back to the Philippians. But... <clears throat> This, this particular book of Philippians is about rejoicing. It's about rejoicing. And Paul's thanking the church. He's expressing his appreciation. He's telling them how much he loves them for their faithfulness and their, to the Lord and their faithfulness even to him. Again, the epistle's not about correction. It's not about condemnation in the least. If anything, it's about more of concern and compassion for the people of God. And again, it's about this glorious Christian experience that we can have in Christ. And so the book of Philippians is a powerful book. Now again, throughout the book of Philippians, you'll find reason after reason after reason why believers are to rejoice. We face a number of obstacles in this life. I mean, we are, by, by, by definition, you and I are overcomers, by the way. I mean, greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. You know, uh, we, we are overcomers. The members of this particular church in Philippi, they were no different than you and I. They're just like you and I. 
They had families and they had lives and they had circumstances and situations that were taking place in their lives. They found themselves bombarded with life itself. Satan had mercilessly attacked them. He had attacked their families. The culture was hostile toward them. Sin was running rampant in their, their, their society. If it wouldn't have been for the influence of the local church, if it wouldn't have been for the encouragement of the man of God, if it wouldn't have been for the fellowship of the believers that they experienced on a regular, consistent basis, they would have surely succumbed to disappointment and discouragement. Without a doubt, they would have. Better men and women than you and I have sought to live the life, the Christian life, and still found themselves discouraged and disappointed. I think of Elijah himself. The great man of God, the prophet of God, Elijah, who after a great victory over the prophets of Baal, finds himself up on a mount, depressed and discouraged. As a matter of fact, in 1 Kings 19.10, the Bible says, and, and he's speaking of himself, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I mean, that's how Elijah felt after a tremendous victory. And yet he says, you know what? I'm the only one standing for God. I'm the only one trying to live for Jesus Christ. I'm the only one. Oh, the Lord responds to him in 1 Kings 19, 18. He says, yet I've, have I left me 7,000 in Israel. All the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. He said, listen, you're not alone, Elijah. You're not the only one trying to serve God. You're not the only one trying to live for the Lord. You're not the only one giving your best and your, your, to me. No, no, let me tell you something. There are 7,000 others who have remained faithful, who have not bowed the knee, who have not kissed Baal and the idols. No, I'm telling you, you're not alone. Hey, but let me say this. I got to think sometimes, I wonder if it was me and Elijah who would be the stronger Christian. I think I know. And I don't think it'd be me. And if he was prone to discouragement, if he was prone to disappointment, if he was prone to being uh, down in the dumps, then let me tell you something. I know that I'm capable and very easily able to be in the same place. We are prone to discouragement and disappointment. But like the church at Philippi, we have a resource provided by God that meets the need every single day of our life. The book of Philippians is a powerful book of hope and encouragement. And it answers the question, why rejoice? I mean, in the world in which we live, why rejoice? I mean, with everything politically, economically, socially that's taking place in our world, our culture, every time we turn on the, the, the television, every time we look on Facebook, every time we consider the news, uh, we are, are bombarded with negativity. What is there to be happy about? What is there to rejoice about? The Bible teaches us in the book of, uh, of, of, of Philippians that we have so many reasons to rejoice. And if we hit our eyes on the world and the things of this world, we will be discouraged and we will be depressed and we will find ourselves disappointed so often. But if we'll get our eyes on Jesus Christ and we'll keep our eyes on His Word, we have so much to rejoice about. And so the series begins, Why Rejoice? Why Rejoice? And today I want to begin by saying, Why Rejoice? Number one, 
the promise. The promise. And we're going to look at that this morning. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this opportunity that we have to gather. And Lord, we do ask, Lord, that you'd speak to us. I, I understand, Lord, in this crowd there are a number of people. And, and Lord, these folks all come, Father, with their own hurts and heartaches. Every one of us, Father, are somewhere in our life. And we're somewhere in our relationship with you. And I just pray, dear God, today that you supernaturally would intercede, that your Holy Spirit would walk these aisles and, Father, truly touch the hearts and lives of each individual and meet the need as it is expressed in their life and in their heart. God, we know that we need you today. But, Lord, help us to be open to your leadership, your love. And, Father, may you just speak to us as we consider why we are to rejoice. Even amidst this dark, sinful, wicked world we live in, there's so much that a believer can rejoice about and be grateful for and thankful for. Oh, God, help us to get our eyes on you and your word. And may we be encouraged today. We'll thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen. Again, Philippians chapter 1 this time, verse 6. We're going to look today at the promise. Why rejoice? Why in the world, in the midst of this world filled with heartache and hurt, why and how could I ever rejoice? I mean, it just breaks my heart to watch what's going on in the world, preacher. It just burdens me down so greatly to think about the direction we're going in our world. And I just have a hard time facing life and dealing with these struggles. And my heart's so heavy today. Yes, it may be heavy, but my friend, we have to get our eyes off of the problems and on the person, Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something today. We have hope today, and we are blessed. And even as the the church at Philippi needed this letter because they needed to be encouraged, so do we today in 2015. Notice in chapter 1, verse 6 of the book of Ephesians. Excuse me, uh, Philippians. I told you Ephesians, didn't I? I, I'm sorry I'm messing up there a little bit. These books all run together for me. I, I don't know why today they are. But nonetheless, if you'll just be patient with me, I'd appreciate it. Being confident, verse 6, of this very thing. Being confident of this very thing. That he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And now that is a powerful verse, isn't it? That's a powerful verse. Being confident of this very thing. That he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We see here the work commenced. It's begun. It started already. Paul's confident of that. As he looks over the Philippians, he recognizes the fact that something has happened in their life. Something supernatural. I mean, their outlook, their perspective, their their view of life has changed even. I mean, when you came to Christ, I trust that something happened. If it didn't, then nothing happened. I mean, God moved into your life. God moved into your heart. He lives in you. And man, it changes our outlook and it changes our attitude and it changes our perspective. And Paul saw that and he could say with confidence, something's changed. Something is different. It's begun. It has started. Those good works that they were exhibiting now in their life were not the result, excuse me, did not result in salvation. It's important to remember that always. Because they did good works, that's not why they were saved. As a matter of fact, they did good works because they were saved. That's the reason. It's not about trying to earn God's favor. It's not about trying to become the child of God. No, we truly trust Him and by faith receive and accept Him. And when we do, He allows us to become part of it. Through His mercy, His grace, and His love, we are received into His family and become part of the body of Christ. But what we're to understand is that the good work of God begins in us. 
the very moment that the Holy Spirit of God takes up permanent residency in our life, the moment He moves in, takes occupancy of us, that work begins at that very moment. This work in Philippians 1, 6, being, 6, being confident of this very thing that He which hath begun a good work in you. It began the very moment Christ moved in and took up occupancy, residency in your life. And we are immediately aware of that new life. Because we have a fresh consciousness or awareness of sin now. Where before we may have been more comfortable or able to deal with sin in our life. And it was par for the course. Now as we face sin in our life, it convicts us. It drives us to our knees. It causes us to feel uncomfortable before our God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The world is aware also of that change, aren't they? As they see the love of Christ in our life. They see our love for God, our love for God's people, our love for lost people. When they see that we, in general, have a different disposition, they say something has happened, something has changed in that life. The work has commenced. It's begun. But also in the passage, we notice, he says, and we note that the work will be completed. It doesn't just start. It doesn't just get going. It is completed. It's, it says, notice what he says. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to perform it. He will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God began a work in your life the moment... You trusted and received Him as Lord and Savior. The moment that the Holy Spirit took up permanent, permanent residency in your life, He began that work, and the Bible says He will complete it. Now, the Bible distinguishes between some different days or various days. Here in this particular passage, He says He'll perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Well, we know in the Bible there's the times of the Gentiles. The Bible talks about that. It's uh, commenced with, uh, you know, Gentile rulership in our world. The Babylonians, of course, kicking it off and all the way through till ultimately Christ rules and until ultimately Christ comes again. We have Gentile rulership, the times of the Gentiles. We also have the day of Christ. We see that day distinguished as well. And of course, that's the day when Christ himself will come to receive his church, his bride. Unto himself. And we will forever be with the Lord. The day of Christ. Then there's also the day of the Lord. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, the word Christ and Lord are different words. And God uses it for a different reason. The day of Christ being the day that Christ returns. And we are taken up with him. We become one with the Lord at that point. Forever with him. And here in this particular case. The day of the Lord. Is a day that embraces. Yes, the coming of the Lord. The return in chapter 19, not the rapture of the church, not the catching away before the tribulation, but the coming of Christ at the second coming, the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the rapture, the revelation. When he's returning in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation with us, his bride, to earth, to establish his throne on earth. And let me say that the day of the Lord encompasses and engulfs that time of tribulation on into the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And it goes right on through that thousand-year millennium. Now, then we have the day of God. The Bible talks about the day of God in a sense. And, and what he's talking about is that time after the new heaven and new earth are created. And then there'll be a time when God is all in all. He's all in all. So in the times of the Gentiles, where the Gentile rule takes over, where God basically steps off the scene and says, you guys think you can do a better job running things than me? Go ahead. Man, let me tell you, make a mess of things too, don't we? So we have the day of, uh, we have the times of the Gentiles. And then we have, like I say, the day of Christ where we're going to be raptured out before the tribulation kicks off. And then, of course, we have the day of the Lord that incorporates that, that tribulation period and virtually goes all the way through because a day is as a thousand years to the Lord. And so it encompasses and incorporates the thousand-year millennium as well. And then we have the, the, the day of, of God where now after the millennium, we have a new heaven and a new earth and time, in a sense, ceases in that regard and God is all in all. So we have these different days. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he's talking about the day of Christ. Again, as we, we note the passage, he says, Being confident of the very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in, a, in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's talking about that day of Christ then. And uh, he's got his eye on that day, when Christ will return, when Christ will come for his church. And you and I who have been blood-bought, you and I who have been received into his family, who, who are espoused to the Lord Jesus Christ, his bride, we are the bride. I mean, that's the day he's looking to. And he's saying, listen, from the very moment you were saved, from the very moment that Christ moved into your heart and into your life, I began a work in your life. And I want you to know I'm going to continue that work and I'm going to complete that work to the very day that Christ returns on your behalf or comes for you. I want you to understand that you're going to stand before God one day at the day of Christ and give an account of your life and, your, and your, your attitude at that judgment seat of Christ. But I'm going to prepare you for that day throughout your lifetime. And that is something as believers to be excited about, to be thankful for and hopeful about, that God's not finished with us, that God is not just starting a work and leaving us to run the program. No, He is doing a work in our life, and He's going to complete that work in our life. When we got saved, we had a change of ownership. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, look there, would you? There was a change of ownership the very moment you got saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. The Bible says, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? Which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Isn't that amazing? Now listen, I, I mean, this, this passage may come as a tremendous encouragement. And then in, in some cases, it may not be so encouraging if we really want to do with our lives what we want to do. But the fact is, whether you want to live your life for yourself or whether you're truly excited about giving and surrendering your life to Jesus Christ, the fact is, is that you have been bought with a price and your life is not yours to do it as you please. God has purchased us. We are under new ownership. Amen. The very day and moment that we got saved. I'm no longer mine. I'm His. Isn't that good? I don't know about you, but there's some benefits to that. If you're one of my children, let me tell you something. I want to... 
provide for you. I want to protect you. I want to see you prosper. I mean, I want my children to do well in life. And so I'm going to share things with them and provide for them and protect them and meet their needs because I want them to prosper. And may I say that because we're under new ownership, we have a God in heaven, our heavenly father, who has the same heart toward us that we have toward our children. He wants to meet our needs. He wants to provide and protect us. He wants to do things that will enable us to prosper in the Christian life and ultimately see the blessings of God in our life. Man, we're under new ownership. It's a good thing to have God as our owner, if you will, to have God as our father. And then there's been a change of address. A change of address. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, an interesting passage. We'll look more closely at this in a week or two. But in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, it says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This word conversation is an interesting word. And what it basically breaks down to when we tear it apart and we begin to work on it is that we have the actions of citizens of heaven. So that we're living like we're in heaven on earth. So, so we're citizens of heaven and our conversation, our life, our attitude, our actions reflects our heavenly home. So basically we're saying that our new citizenship is that of being a heavenly being. Amen. Okay, so, so our, we're really, going, we know we're going to heaven, but now on earth, our citizenship is really that of heaven. So it'd be like I'm an ambassador. Okay, we've heard those words in the Bible. And I'm an ambassador. I'm an American on foreign soil serving on behalf of America. So I am really a citizen of heaven, and that's my citizenship now. That changed the moment I got saved. I'm really already seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. And I reckon myself, or reckon it to be so, and now I'm simply living my life on earth as a representative of my kingdom, heaven, my, my home, heaven, my citizenship, heaven, and I'm living and acting that way, just like I would if I was living there. I mean, that's what's basically going on here. I have a change of ownership. But a change of address. My, my new address is heaven. P.O. Box heaven. That's where I'm at. That's wonderful. And so when we got saved, we were seeing a change of over, uh, over ownership. When we, we got saved, we received a change of address. And that's you and I today. Now, with all that said, let me give you three thoughts, okay? Very quickly as we close today. Again, God began a work in you. He began a work in me. And that work never ends in our life. You say, why has God let this happen? Or why did he let that in our life? Listen, I'm not going to lie to you today. The truth is, is God permits things in our life that are unpleasant. I can't, I can't lie to you. I can't tell you that you become a child of God. Everything's going to be wonderful. You'll never have heartache. You'll never have disappointment. You'll never have tough times in your life. No, you're going to face some difficult times. It's not always going to be easy, but hold on. He says, all things work together for good to them that love God who are called according to his purpose. God has a purpose and a plan for your life. And he's trying to mold and make you into what he wants you to be for the purpose of bringing glory and honor to him. And I know that doesn't sound very comforting when you're going through a difficult time. But let me just say this, that because of the difficult times, we can truly identify how good God is when we recognize the blessings in our life from it. Now, three thoughts. No matter what you do, if you've been saved, God is still holding you. 
I just want you to always remember that. No matter what you do, God is still holding you. Somebody says, really? Yeah, over in the book of John. Turn there, if you would, please, chapter 10. We're going to use this verse, but listen, doctrinally speaking, this really applies primarily to the, to, 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 it's an Old Testament verse because the death of the testator hasn't taken place yet. But let me say this. When we read through the New Testament, we read that we are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Now watch this verse. This says that you're in his hand. But really, you know what the Bible's really telling us as New Testament believers? We are the hand. God would have to chop his hand off to get rid of us. Because we're in Christ. We're not just in his hand. Now, he's holding on to us. I understand that. And, and I'm using these verses because they, very, they paint a nice picture. But the fact is that we are the hand, really. We're in him. We're in him. And if God could take someone and say, no one can pluck them out of my hand, let me tell you something. In order to get me out of Christ, he'd have to get rid of the hand. And even if he got rid of that, I'd be probably part of his arm or something. Because I'm not going anywhere. I want to be there. Now notice John chapter 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice. The Lord Jesus Christ speaking, of course. And I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. That, that eternal life, isn't that an interesting word? Eternal. That's forever, right? Let's be honest. A, lot of, a number of people struggle. They struggle with whether or not they're really eternally saved. Someone says, I believe I got saved. Are you eternally saved? Oh, yeah. But then all of a sudden, some things in their life go awry, and they go, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm saved anymore. Well, were you eternally saved or not? Because eternal is forever. But notice what it says here. It goes on to say, he says, um, And I shall give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. He's saying, listen, if I've saved you, if I've secured you, then let me tell you something. There's nobody that's going to change that. No one. No one. You, you know what? You might make some horrible miscalculations and you may sin against the Lord even. And, and, and listen, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, he says in the book of Romans? He says, God forbid. God forbid. I mean, don't, don't use this liberty that we have. Don't use this as a license for, for sin. Don't allow yourself, because you're saved forever, to somehow give you this peace to say, well, then I can go ahead and do whatever I want, and I'm still going to heaven. That's, that's not, that doesn't, shouldn't even remotely enter the mind of a believer. That should never be part of our thinking. But let me say this. He has begun a good work in you, and he will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. And so, you know what? If you've, you know, no matter what you do, I, I, I'm not going to sit up here and tell you that you could lose your salvation. You can't lose what God's given you. You can't lose what he's provided and given to you. That doesn't happen. If you've genuinely, sincerely, with all your heart, meant business with God, he meant business with you and he saved you. And he began a work and he will continue that work and perform that work till the day of Jesus Christ. That's something to shout about, isn't it? That's something to get excited and to rejoice about. The man I trusted Christ, and guess what? He's still holding on. He's not letting me go. Doesn't give me a license or the liberty to sin against God. Because the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that there will be consequences for our disobedience and rebellion. Because he's a loving father. 
But boy, thank God that he doesn't let us go. He's still holding on. Number two, no matter where you are, if you've been saved, God is still there for you. No matter where you are. Not just what you do, but where you are. Hey, you, I don't know where you're at in your life right now. Maybe you're struggling with some things in your life. Maybe you've had some difficult times and maybe even some doubt has kind of, kind of scraped the surface of your brain and you're thinking, you know, I'm just wondering about this thing, the Christian life. I, I know I meant business with God. I still believe there's a creator in heaven, but I'm struggling in the Christian life. I'm just not sure if this is really working like I thought it would work. I'm just not confident. You may have some doubts in your mind even. You may be at a place in your life where you're very depressed or discouraged or down in the dumps. You may feel that nobody loves you and that nobody cares anymore. That you're all alone like Elijah was up there on that mount. I don't care where you are. I want you to understand, without a doubt, without a doubt, God is still there for you. Oh, I know, I know. He says, if you draw nigh to me, I'll draw nigh to you. I understand that. He says, if you regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. I understand that. But I'm telling you that when he moved in and took residency in your life, he began a work in you and he will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. He may allow some difficult times in your life to wake you up, to get you back, to get you moving in the right direction again. That's right. Maybe that's the case. Or you right now have just been hit between the eyes, has nothing to do with sin at all. It's just that God has permitted some things to cross his desk and he wrote his approval on it, stamped it, and let the devil have a little bit of playtime in your life. And it's causing you a lot of heartache, dis, uh, discontentment, and maybe even some discomfort. But let me tell you, he has not left you. He's still there. In Hebrews chapter thirteen five, turn there if you would please. And it's, it's easy to start to wonder where God is sometimes in our life. I mean, I, I mean I, I'm a pastor, yes, but let me tell you something. I'm a man. I'm a human being. And I'll tell you what, there have been times in my life, and there are those times when sometimes God may seem a million miles away, but let me tell you what, He hasn't left me. I have left Him. Amen. Hebrews 13, 5. He says there in the passage, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with what such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now now watch this again. He says, let your conversation be without covetousness. We know coveting has to do with wanting something that's someone else's or it's not ours. He says, listen, let your conversation, let not just your speech, but your life live this mentality and attitude that I don't need nor do I want anything that someone else's. I only want what God wants for me. And be content with what things you have. I'm good with what God has given. When God is ready to give me more, He'll give me more. Until then, this is sufficient. It is enough. Because God is enough. And that's exactly what He says. Why? Why should your conversation be without covetousness? Why should you be content in such things you have? Because He will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Because He is enough. Because having Christ in your life is enough. It's more than the world can even fathom or imagine. We look at the headlines every day and we go, Wow, the world is just spiraling out of control. And we can be discouraged and so disappointed. And he's saying, look unto me. Realize that I'm with you. And no matter how chaotic and how confusing Satan makes this world in which you live, I want you to know that there is contentment and there is purpose and there is peace in me. 
And no matter where you are in your life, whether you are in the depths of despair, whether you are in the midst of a sinful pattern of life, I want you to know that if you are my child, I began that work in you, and I will continue that work till the day of Jesus Christ. I'm still there. Number three, no matter where you are. If you have been saved, God's still working on you. He's still working on you. There was a song years ago that came out. It was called, He's Still Working on Me. And it was a, a song that got really super popular in the 80s, you know. Very popular. He said, He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and faithful he must be. He's still working on me. Boom, boom, boom. Aren't you glad that he's working on you still? You say, but there ain't much to work with here, preacher. It doesn't matter. When he gets to working on you, he is the master sculptor. He can mold and make you into something you never dreamed. I think of Gideon over there that says, what, mighty man of valor? Who are you talking to, Lord? I'm talking to you, Gideon. I'm a nobody. I'm a nothing, Lord. He says, that's all right. You let me worry about that. Because I'm somebody. Boy, isn't that wonderful? He's still working on us. I mean, Peter denied the Lord, did he not, three times? I mean, here he traveled with Jesus Christ for three years. He lived with the Lord for three years. He was encouraged and uplifted by Christ. For three years, he, he absorbed the teachings of Christ and he received them unto himself. But when the time came to be tested, he says, Lord, I'll never deny thee. I'll never deny thee. And he says, oh, yes, you will. And sure enough, he did, didn't he? But you know what? God was still working on him. God still had a plan for the Apostle Peter. God still had a purpose for his life. And it wouldn't be very long after that that 3,000 people would come to Christ as the Holy Spirit of God descended and empowered the church at Pentecost. He's still working on me. I think of Jonah. Here's Jonah, commissioned by the Lord to go preach to a nation, an enemy nation. And he says, man, I don't want to do it. Because I know enough about my God to know that if he, if they repent, he'll save them. He didn't want them saved. He didn't want their city, uh, you know, uh, to escape judgment. Man, he ran the other way. He jumps on a ship, heads on out the opposite direction. And God sends a big fish. Swallows him up. Three days and three nights there, he has plenty of time to think in the belly of a whale. And when the whale finally, let let me put this as as nicely as I can, regurgitates him up (laughs) on shore. He makes a beeline. A three-day journey is only one. And God says, I'm not through with you yet, Jonah. You may have ended up in the wrong place. You may not have obeyed me when you should have. You may have turned your back on me and my purpose and plan for your life. But the fact is, is that I'm still working on you. And man, he turned him loose on Nineveh and he preached the word of God and people repented and God saved the city. Fulfilling his work. God's not through with you either. 
I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what you're dealing with. But what I do know is that God is not finished dealing with you. He hath begun a good work in us and will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You can be confident of that. And so wherever you are today, God is still working on you. You say, but you don't, man, preacher, I just feel so low. I feel so inadequate. I just don't think God could ever do anything with me. (laughs) Well, join the human race. You're exactly what and who God what and who God is looking for. Because you know he wants the glory. It's for his pleasure. So may we submit and surrender to him today, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. And that's good. Well, do you know Christ today as your Savior, your Lord? If you don't, you need to settle that first and foremost. There needs to be a day, a time, a place when you personally received and accepted him where you knew you were that sinner that he died for 2,000 years ago. And you finally humbled yourself before him and begged his mercy, his forgiveness, cried out to him, said, Oh, God, forgive me and save me. Oh, God, come into my life. I need you, Lord Jesus. Because, see, he's the only one that can do that in your life. He's the only one that can forgive you, save you, give you a a new address, new ownership. And let me tell you, the world has nothing to offer you that's worth living for. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What's so valuable that it's worth dying and going to hell for? Being separated eternally from Jesus Christ and the God who created and loved you so much. What's worth that? There's nothing worth that. So today, if you haven't trusted him, won't you do that today? And if you have, rest assured and be confident. You may feel like a failure today, but God's still working in your life. Don't give up on God because he hasn't given up on you. And you have every reason to rejoice because you are his and he's still working in you. And no matter what goes on in the world around you, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Boy, that's a blessing, isn't it? That's a reason to rejoice. He's still working on us. Father, we come to you.